You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As usual, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. And today we're going to be discussing what is a busy Asia Summit Week for the Trump administration here in Washington, specifically the summit meeting that just concluded between Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and U.S. President uh, Donald Trump, as well as looking ahead to the other summit meeting later this week uh, between Trump and South Korea's President Moon. I think it's fair to say that both of these summit meetings have been preceded by a lot of nervousness and, uh, to a certain extent, lowered expectations by both sides, particularly because of the uncertainty surrounding the Trump administration's policies and what it means for its relationships with uh, Asian states. Um, so with that, we'll start w- by analyzing the U.S.-India summit meeting between Modi and Trump, uh, which just happened yesterday um, and was the focus of Modi's visit, even though we he did meet with other U.S. officials and there were uh, other interactions uh, during the visit uh, as well. Um, so Ankit, you I've uh, been monitoring U.S.-India relations very closely and also uh, looked uh, very closely at some of the deliverables that occurred as well as some of the atmospherics. How do you think that uh, the meeting went given the expectations that uh, both sides had coming in? Uh, sure. Yeah, no, I think um, I think you laid it out pretty, pretty well, Prashant. I mean, I would agree that expectations were low and uncertainty was certainly high leading up to this meeting. Um, and I guess the big question, you know, I wrote a brief preview of of the visit where you know what i saw is the big question that really lay ahead and basically the main task for modi at this meeting was to help um ensure that the united states under trump still bought into the i guess quote unquote narrative about india that the bush administration and the obama administration had really taken for granted right we often talk about this mm-hmm. idea of the us india relationship enjoying a bipartisan consensus in washington that has really been a feature of the relationship since the bush administration concluded the civil nuclear agreement right i mean obviously there was difficulties in the late 90s after the nuclear test india was sanctioned by the united states uh, but then things normalized fairly quickly um you had you know Clinton's visit helped in that, and then really the Bush administration's uh, nuclear deal really took things to the next level. And then when Modi comes into office in 2014, um, things really change. You have a more willing partner in New Delhi that kind of is willing to shed the historic adherence to kind of non-alignment and, you know, just a strategic autonomy more broadly and pivot more decisively towards the United States. So, you know, we see that pay dividends over the years. And last year, as we have talked about on this podcast before, India was declared a major defense partner of the United States. Uh, That's a bespoke status that the United States only has conferred on India. And what that basically does is it gives New Delhi access to U.S., defense technology at the same level as an ally without having to apply any sort of labels, right? India is really not that comfortable with labels uh, for a variety of domestic political reasons that I won't get into right now. Um, But look, I mean, so, you know, you have this U.S. administration leave in 2016. U.S.-India relations are on this incredibly... Um, positive momentum, right? There's all this great momentum. Things have been moving pretty rapidly. Donald Trump comes in and everybody kind of has a question mark, right? There's all this um, speculation in the Indian media about Trump's kind of anti-immigration agenda. How is that going to affect kind of issues like H-1B visas, which are something that, um, you know, a lot of upper middle class and middle class Indians tend to care about. So as a result, it tends to have um, oversized kind of resonance in the in the country's politics. And, you know, Modi and Trump had spoken on the phone twice, and this was Modi's fifth visit to the United States. So really, this is kind of, you know, the context of where things occurred. Um, 
And look, like overall, at the end of the day, I think um, I think this came out in the piece that I wrote is that I think things went better than expected. Um, but this really wasn't a remarkable moment in U.S.-India relations writ large, right? And in a sense, that was good that, you know, nothing really went wrong. Uh, there were some pretty reasonable deliverables. There was a good show of continuity. There was a good show that this strategic relationship remained strategic and remained broad, right? Uh, they completed, uh, they managed to address kind of almost all of the issues that used to be addressed in U.S.-India joint statements. And there are a few notable exceptions here that we'll get to later, climate change obviously being one. Um, so I'll stop there, Prashant, and then, um, you know, yeah. maybe we can uh, take things from there. Yeah, um, you know, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I think uh, you know, your point about uh, the need for India to stress to the United States that it uh, should continue to buy into this narrative um, was definitely something that could not be taken for granted given the unconventional nature of this administration relative to some of its predecessors. Um, I also think, you know, insofar as both sides wanted to signal enough of a general convergence uh, between two close partners, whether it's, you know, in terms of the positive momentum of the relationship or some kind of personal connection, it, it seemed to go pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, it seemed like the two leaders did genuinely get along. Um, but I also think, you know, I, you indicated this uh, as well, um, and I wrote about this in, in, in my take on the visit. Uh, it, this is very much the easy part, right? I mean, and this is to your point about um, this not being a particularly remarkable period um, or interaction in U.S.-India relations. I mean, Modi is coming at the beginning of the Trump administration when, you know, ties with China are still fairly intact. Um, the administration's broader Middle East and foreign policy is not yet in place. Tensions with North Korea haven't really ratcheted up that significantly, but all of these things could happen uh, in the next few months. Um, so th this relationship could also get a lot more complicated um, as time goes by. But I think, given the low expectations that existed before the meeting, I, I don't. I think that both sides were probably happy with with what occurred. Um, but let's sort of switch uh, to the substantive issues that were discussed, which both of us paid close attention to as well. Did anything uh, in particular stand out to you? Um, you know, sort of, there were several documents that came out. Um, the one which I think a lot of people scoured um, very closely to look at was the joint statement. Um, anything that uh, stood out in terms of what was either in it or what was left out to you? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is something we could talk about for a while. So I'm just going to focus on a few things. Obviously, this is a, you know, a U.S.-India joint statements, I think, um, have really matured as documents. They're long, they're comprehensive, they address a pretty broad range of issues, right? So the first thing I'll point out about this joint statement that I was curious to see and, you know, I was proven correct was that almost a third of it focused on economic issues and trade, right? And that's not surprising to me. Um, obviously, you know, uh, close U.S. allies like Germany and Chancellor Angela Merkel have seen this administration's focus on trade and trade deficits up close. So India is no exception. India maintains a trade deficit with the United States. The Trump administration is obsessed with trade deficits to a level. So really, you know, it shouldn't be surprising to see that um, fair trade, uh, quote unquote, fair trade received quite a bit of attention um, in mm -hmm. in the document. And and it was, you know, fairly amicable. I was, I was concerned that, you know, there might have been a little bit more acrimony involved in the trade issue. Um, you know, India obviously has 
a storied history at the World Trade Organization. It's often seen as a, a spoiler for international multilateral trade talks. And obviously, the fact that it maintains a deficit with the United States could have all, you know, been real points of contention, right? Uh, when the Vietnamese prime minister, for example, visited in in late May, uh, U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, um, according to reports, was pretty straightforward about the issue of the trade deficits and things got a little testy. Modi didn't quite get that treatment, and it looks like the U.S.-India joint statement handled it about as well as it could have, right? So that was the first thing about the statement that I think is worth mentioning on this podcast. Uh, the second thing I think um, is uh, relevant to... China, uh, right? So you pointed this out in your piece too, right? There's this whole kind of section that's really about China, but China isn't mentioned by name, uh, right? It's the section that talks about um, freedom of navigation, peaceful resolution of disputes. Uh, The South China Sea notably isn't mentioned by name. I think the United States and India haven't done that in a leaders level joint statement since 2014, um, uh, or sorry, 2015. And then... um, the Belt and Road Initiative also, uh, while not mentioned by name, is called out, right? There's this interesting paragraph uh, dealing with um, regional economic connectivity through the transparent development of infrastructure. And, you know, that paragraph goes on to mention uh, respect for sovereignty, uh, which speaks to kind of India's hesitation about the Belt and Road Initiative, specifically the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which goes through a uh, disputed portion of Kashmir that is currently administered by Pakistan. So a lot of uh, Indian analysts have been pretty excited about this. They see it as um, Modi having successfully convinced the United States to buy in to its kind of trouble with the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, I'm a little bit more skeptical. We don't really know where the U.S. stands. I mean, yes, Matt Pottinger did lead a delegation to the Belt and Road Forum last month. And yes, you know, Wilbur Ross did make that announcement that included a final clause acknowledging the importance of the Belt and Road Initiative. But we really don't know how far the United States has bought into this, right? The U.S. continues to remain outside of the AIIB and related institutions. So I wouldn't necessarily think that this is a huge win for India. But, you know, having this in a joint statement certainly uh, doesn't hurt at this venture. And the final thing I'll mention um, is the language on Pakistan, which I was also looking forward to observing. And I'll say that, you know, it was um, it was stronger than it's been in the past. And uh, specifically, I think what's notable is the mention of cross-border terror attacks, right? Um, So I think seeing this in a leaders-level statement is, again, pretty notable. Uh, Last year, after the Uri attacks in September, when Pakistan-based militants attacked an Indian army camp in uh, India-occupied Kashmir, um, it was actually the highest casualty attack the Indian army had suffered in a while. I think we talked about it on the podcast too back then, right? India responded with surgical strikes. um, And there was, you know, that phone call between then U.S. National Security Advisor Susan Rice and uh, Ajit Doval, her Indian counterpart. Um, but, uh, you know, to see this mentioned in, in a leader's level statement, I think, again, is a, a welcome development for India. Um, so, uh, you know, also there was the designation of um, Saeed Salahuddin of the Hezbollah Mujahideen in uh, Kashmir, which, you know, I largely see as a symbolic gesture by the United States to kind of appease Indian interests. Um, but again, you know, I mean, overall, uh, these moves are being regarded highly positively in India and as evidence that Modi has figured out how to uh, talk to the Trump administration about India's kind of core interests. Um, so yeah. I'll, I'll leave it there, Prashant. And I guess, you know, I'm, I kind of want to ask you, uh, you know, going off your piece a little One of the deliverables that I think everybody knew was coming that received a ton of attention in the press was this uh, drone sale, right, of the Sea Guardian drones. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you make of that? I mean, uh, I mean, just uh, just how significant is that in your view to uh, the future trajectory of uh, India-U.S. relations from here? 
Yeah. Um, so I think this was, um, as you pointed out, something that um, you know was received significant attention before the summit meeting, um, and in fact, this sale um, was already discussed and deliberated between both sides with uh, some difficulty um, over the past few months. And so there was little surprise um, that it was mentioned uh, in the joint statement in terms of the the actual transaction. Uh, but I think the broader significance is the fact that, um, as you were pointing out earlier, I mean, India received this major defense partner status uh, last year, the tail end of the Obama administration. Um, and both sides, I think, were looking to demonstrate um, that there actually is some meaning and significance in terms of tangible achievements they can point to about what India can uh, sort of achieve or expect with respect to specific uh, defense equipment and technology. So this is an example that they can now point to. But the fact is, you know, the reality is, you know, we all know that, you know, there are significant challenges to actually getting this uh, cooperation to operationalize on a broader level. I mean, there is this whole sort of pipeline of equipment um, that the United States could potentially sell to India, but India has, you know, lagged behind in terms of time significantly when it comes to even uh, sort of approving the foundational documents that are required for these um, equipment to be delivered uh, to India. So um, I, I would say, you know, the inclusion uh, is significant in terms of the the broader sort of uh, defense partner status. But I still think, you know, it, to a certain extent, it also masks the underlying challenges um, in the bilateral defense relationship uh, that still remain, um, even though there is this sort of broad strategic convergence mm -hmm. uh, that, that both of us have talked about. I mean, I also think that, you know, the point that you mentioned about uh, China uh, is an important one. Um, you know, we've both looked at these joint statements um, quite closely before, too, and you can see that there is this kind of language going back to the Obama administration. But um, I was struck by um, how uh, sort of sharp uh, the positive vision was that was articulated at the outset of the joint statement in terms of these principles, you know, freedom of navigation and overflight regional economic connectivity. And I, I think, you know, if you were to be bullish on the U.S.-India relationship, you can see uh, what what amounts to sort of a both sides crafting a positive vision for what uh, the future of the Asia-Pacific would look like that looks very different from what a Chinese vision will look like, whether it's on the South China Sea or the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I don't want to go too far and say that uh, th this this vision is something that both sides uh, agree on in terms of the specifics. I think it masks a lot of uh, disagreements that they still continue to have, including on how they approach uh, China. And those differences could exacerbate um, as we see the Trump administration move on. But I do think you know it was interesting to note that um, the joint vision statement was structured that way. I think it was quite telling. So that that point I think deserves noting. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, with that, let's now move briefly to talk about um, the, the other summit uh, that we have uh, coming up later this week, which is uh, Moon's uh, summit meeting with Trump. And so in this interaction, we, we have um, two new leaders in the Asia-Pacific, relatively speaking. Um, it's, as you mentioned, you know, Modi's fifth visit to the United States, but it's going to be Moon's uh, first visit as in his current capacity um, after winning uh, an election last month. Uh, and Trump just came into office in January. So two new administrations and also a packed agenda 
you know, all the way from, you know, North Korea down to alliance management issues such as the deployment of uh, the THAAD system in South Korea. So what are you going to be uh, looking for uh, in this summit meeting, whether in terms of um, atmospherics or substantive issues that both sides are going to be discussing? Yeah, no, sure. Um, I think, you know, this is actually what I was you know, really looking forward to talking about today. Um, you know, I think this is going to be an incredibly significant summit. Um, in a way, you know, it might be the most important summit between a Korean, a, a South Korean leader and a U.S. president in some time. Uh, Moon, obviously, it's early days with him. He was elected in a special early election after the impeachment and removal of his predecessor, conservative uh, Park Geun-hye, from office. Um, and, you know, he's been around for a while. There have been um, a few points of contention, obviously, that you mentioned, uh, one being the terminal high-altitude area defense uh, system um, and the other uh, you know, and this is sort of faded from the headlines, but, uh, you know, the Trump administration's comments on the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement also tend to loom large um, around this summit. Um, I'll also just mention for listeners, um, Moon Jae-in is a fascinating figure and a fascinating uh, president for South Korea. And um, we actually did a recent podcast where I had uh, Stephen Denny um, of uh, Sino-NK to talk about uh, Moon Jae-in in some detail. So if you're interested in kind of who Moon really is, um check that episode out. Uh, we really go uh, quite in depth into his background. Um, but anyways, you know, I mean, so look, I mean, the question is, uh, as this summit approaches in days, is that uh, Moon and Trump are obviously very different leaders in both, um, you know, when it comes to style and when it comes to the substance of how to deal with the North Korean problem. The Trump administration has obviously elevated North Korea to the top of its national security priorities. Uh, that's been clear since really the presidential transition period. Uh, it sees, uh, you know, Mattis has described North Korea as the as a top threat for the United States. Uh, North Korea continues to march towards an intercontinental ballistic missile capability that will hold the U.S. homeland at um, under threat. It can currently threaten South Korea um, and obviously Japan. Um, Moon is of a different mind from Trump, right? He is a liberal. Um, he is generally pro-engagement with North Korea. Um, he isn't anti-American. Um, that's something that kind of gets thrown around um, a little, um, you know. And I've um, I've written an article about that that I can also um, link in the description for listeners. Uh, we're interested in going into more detail about that. You know, Moon Jae-in is not anti-American. He believes in the U.S.-South Korea alliance. He's been very clear about that since, especially coming into office. Um, but there are, you know, um, serious al alliance management problems here. So the first one is the THAAD issue, which I think will um, almost certainly come up at the summit. Um, Moon Jae-in gave an interview to the Washington Post recently that I wrote about for the site. Uh, where he talked about the uh, the Thad issue. So uh, just some brief context. Uh, so Thad has you know been uh, in the headlines. Uh, if you've been reading about Northeast Asia for about the past year and a half, the U.S. and South Korea decided last year in the summer to formally deploy it to South Korea despite Chinese protests. The Chinese worry about the radar system, which they think can collect important data about their own um, missile systems, potentially their uh, even their nuclear second strike capability. Uh, the system was declared operational just days before the South Korean election in May. Um, and there was this perception that uh, the South Korean military and the United States had tried to sneak it in before Moon could be elected. It was pretty clear that Moon would win, and he had been a vocal opponent of the THAAD system during um, both you know, the impeachment process leading up to Park Geun-hye's uh, removal and also as a candidate, though he did kind of tone down his opposition. Uh, so after this was removed, um, it, it later turned out 
out that, uh, you know, Moon's office had been kind of cut out of the picture a bit on what was going on with the THAAD system by the South Korean military, which presented a host of kind of civil military issues in South Korea, but also presented an alliance problem, right? So what the Moon um, administration did is that they declared that they would be suspending the deployment of four out of six total planned THAAD launchers. So two of them are operational right now. Four other planned launchers won't be deployed until the South Korean government can complete an environmental assessment. And, you know, some people um, are seeing this as a tactical delay tactic. The South Korean government had conducted an environmental assessment in April under the caretaker prime minister, uh, Hwang Kyo-han. So, um, you know, there is kind of this uncomfortable environment um, right now with that. And as if, you know, that's not bad enough, Trump had uh, told Reuters in, I believe, late April that South Korea should maybe pay the bill for that. Um, And this kind of goes back to another issue. And, you know, I'm rambling, so I'll keep this short. But, you know, there is the possibility that this summit could be marred by Trump suddenly bringing up host nation support questions about how much South Korea is paying for U.S. forces to be on its soil. Uh, So I'll leave it there, Prashant. Um, And, uh, you know, we can maybe talk about some of these things in a bit more detail. Yeah. um, You know, I I think uh, that that, uh, sort of point that you made about... um, lingering disputes uh, sort of coming to the fore uh, in the alliance, particularly with respect to these issues like THAAD um, and and North Korea in particular are important to keep in mind because even though they may not manifest themselves publicly um, in the summit, um, as as uh, some are speculating, uh, they, they will still very much be part of the atmosphere among both sides. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I think... Uh, there are a few important things that I think, um, you know, you, you've mentioned this in, in, in a few of your pieces, and we, we've talked about this before in other settings as well. Um, important things to keep in mind, even even as uh, these uh, two countries try to patch relations up despite the uncertainty that lingers is, I mean, the, the first is that this is, these are two administrations that really early on um, in, in, their, um, in their terms, right? Um, and uh, the Bush administration, as I mentioned, with respect to um, the Modi, oh, sorry, uh, not the Bush administration, the Trump administration, um, as I mentioned in the um, interaction with Modi in the summit, um, this is an administration that's still getting its act together in terms of foreign policy. And so what we witness in terms of uh, the past few U.S. administrations is that their North Korea policy and approach can change over time. I, the Bush administration you saw um, an administration that was initially quite tough and then uh, did explore engagement in its later years with the Obama administration, you almost saw uh, sort of the opposite, right? Where you you had the administration try out engagement, but then toughen its its approach later on. And I think, you know, um, as much as the Trump administration has signaled its approach very clearly uh, early on, um, it's important to keep in mind that it's still early days. I think the the second point um, that I'd emphasize um, with the summit meeting as well as the U.S.-South Korea relationship more generally is that um, Moon has been portrayed um, as as being uh, a little too uh, anti-American. And you wrote a piece about this um, on the site, actually, uh, clarifying that while we should not um, underestimate the differences that p- could potentially arise between the two countries, and we should take his views seriously in terms of his history. Um, he has been very careful about how he's talked about um, 
the alliance uh, with the United States, as well as how he wants to balance uh, his relationships, whether it's uh, with respect to China or whether um, it's his engagement uh, with North Korea. Um, and I think the, the, the final thing I'll say is that um, well, I've seen a number of um, pieces um, floating around um, that look at historical an analogies in the U.S.-South Korea relationship. And I think what I would emphasize there is um, history is important to remember, but it's also the case that you know times have changed uh, with respect to the U.S.-South Korea relationship, but also with respect to North Korea and China's role uh, in the region. And so um, it's not necessarily true that we might have a – that. South Korea um, and Moon may have the same room to engage North Korea or even have the same flexibility in terms of how it wants to approach its alignments that South Korea did enjoy um, back in the day. So we should, I think, keep these realities in mind because I suspect um, mm -hmm. we're going to see a, a lot more fluidity with respect to these relationships uh, than is being portrayed. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I think that final point you made um, about, you know, times having changed is absolutely right, right? Like um, one of the common strains of analysis you'd see is that we're, you know, we're poised for sunshine policy 2.0 or 3.0, however you want to count it. Uh, but, you know, the international sanctions regime in North Korea has strengthened considerably. Mm -hmm. um, in the meantime, South Korean domestic law has even changed to uh, prohibit the extent to which a South Korean government can um, engage North Korea without kind of accountability for uh, human rights and uh, other related issues. So, you know, there's only so far that Moon can go. And look, I mean, when it comes to this summit that's coming up, I think what's really the question that's um, ahead of us is, you know, can Moon just pull off basically what Modi did, right? An unremarkable meet and greet, a good right. photo op, um, produce, you know, a, a generally unexciting joint statement or a joint press conference, reaffirm the alliance, show that things are good, you know, show that, um, you know, that deployment will go on after however long this environmental review takes, um, show that, you know, you're committed at least on the same page on North Korea, right? And I think broadly there is room for that. Uh, the Trump administration is pretty much sticking to strategic patience. They're calling it maximum pressure, but it's basically strategic patience plus, right? They're just going to try to implement sanctions a little bit more. And that's something I think that the Moon administration can um, can sign on to at this point. Um, I mean, there's been some kind of, you know, lingering ideas in the in recent days about, uh, you know, the Winter Olympics and uh, various other things uh, to yeah. build inter-Korean solidarity. But uh, I don't think that those will necessarily need to be brought up at this summit. Um, and, you know, there is always the possibility for a Trump wild card, right? The Korea-U.S. free trade agreement is another area uh, where we might see some tension emerge. Um, and potentially, you know, Trump could bring up something uh, about host nation support. Uh, he's he's done that in meetings with um, other other allies. Um, and it could some it could be something that Moon um, experiences, too. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll find out very soon how things go. And there's always the lingering possibility that North Korea will decide to invite itself to the summit uninvited um, by conducting <laughs> yeah. a missile test. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, that could lead to something like what Abe had to do in Mar-a-Lago when they had to arrange an emergency press conference. And, um, you know, I think that moment was actually received quite well, um, that people thought that the U.S. side handled that well. So something like that could be actually you know, help these two leaders uh, figure out that they're in this together and they need to ultimately coordinate if they are to deal with the North Korean problem successfully. Yeah, definitely. Um, so with that, I, I think we'll uh, leave it there. Um, so to our listeners, thanks for joining us. 
And as always, if you like what you hear, do leave us a review on iTunes um, as that really helps. And uh, feel free to reach out to Ankit or myself if you have other topics you'd like us to discuss. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us. All right. Talk to you next time, Prashant. All right. Take care, man.